Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about it in relation to church and churchism and cults and all sorts of good things like that. Churchism. What is that? That's actually a new coined word. There's a churchism.org, and some fellow is writing on there, and someone asked me to read one of his articles, and uh, some of what he said is true, as usual. We always find some truth in everything. And some of what he says is lacking truth because it's lacking information. And without information, you may come to the wrong conclusions. And so we're going to do a study. And we're going to add it to our mystery study. Uh, because we've been studying a number of different mysteries that uh, seem to be a mystery to everybody. But all mysteries are not really all that much of a mystery. It's just that because we lack certain information, we come to faultier, curious, or incorrect conclusions simply because we do not have all the pieces of the puzzle. So we're going to look at a couple of words to begin with so that we know what we're talking about when we use these words so they mean what in your mind, what we're meaning when we use those words. And we have a word, cult. We see that all the time. People always say, oh, that's a cult, or uh, are you involved in a cult? What is a cult? Most people would be absolutely astonished at the definition of a, a cult. It's simply a particular system of religious worship, especially with reference to its rites and ceremonies. And what are rites? Rites are what you do. And ceremonies are the way in which you do them. So it's not that complicated of a thing, but it doesn't say anything about it being bad. It just says a particular system of religious worship, especially with reference to what it's doing and how it does things. It doesn't say that it's, you know, a bad thing at all. It talks about religious worship, period. And second definition, an instance of great veneration of a person or an ideal or a thing, especially manifested by a body of admirers. The physical fitness cult, as an example. So, I mean, you know, uh, Jack LaLanne might have, you might call him a cult. Because he has a big body of admirers. I think he's passed away now. But as I was growing up, everybody, Jack LaLanne was an admired physical fitness expert. The Catholic Church. That could be a cult. The followers of Billy Graham. That could be a cult. By that definition, it fits. It doesn't say anything about it being bad or evil or wicked or wrong. It just says that it has... People who follow some sort of person or ideal or thing, especially as manifested by a body of admirers. That's simple. That's what a cult is. 
the object of such devotion, so they talk about a cult leader being the object of such a devotion. And down in definition four, a group or a sect bound together by veneration of the same thing or person or ideal, etc. Still, nothing bad here. Jesus was the leader of a cult by this definition. We use this word whenever somebody says, well, that's a cult. Well, what isn't in a cult? What religious group is not a cult? When we look at, use the word in the sense of sociology, it says a group having a sacred ideology and a set of rites centering around their sacred symbols. Well, I mean, what, what church doesn't have some sort of symbol or name or whatever? Very common. Very common. Uh, the Olympics. It's a cult. You know, they've got their symbol there of all the little rings that you see. Uh, we wouldn't call it a cult, probably. It would probably be some sort of a misuse of the word, because it's not really that religious. But to some people, the Olympics is a big deal. I mean, they they work their whole lives to get into the Olympics. It's huge sacrifices. Absolutely, that is what they are working for more than anything else. And there's certainly ideology involved with this competition. So, the word doesn't narrow down very much. Finally, in the sixth definition, and that, which is the way it is with words, you can have multiple definitions for the same word because it may be used a number of different ways. In the sixth definition, it says, a religion or sect considered to be false. Considered by who? Obviously not the people who are in it. It says unorthodox or extremist with members often living outside of conventional society under the direction of a charismatic leader. Now that's what most people are thinking when you say the word cult. It requires a charismatic leader, which evidently leaves me out because I'm not that charismatic. Unorthodox, yeah, we're unorthodox. If you want to define orthodox, which is very important to do, because today's unorthodox was yesterday's orthodox, and yesterday's orthodox was today's unorthodox. So, you know, what time frame has a lot to do with where you're going to use your standard of measurement as orthodox? And now false, false, that gets into a wide area because of the fact that throughout society you'll find all kinds of people with false ideas. I mean, you have a whole system of conservatives and liberals that disagree as to what is true, what is good, what is right. And half the country thinks one way and half the country seems to think the other way. So, somebody's wrong. Maybe half the country is wrong at any given time. Maybe both groups are wrong, and neither one of them have a solution. So, that would be, they're all false. When it is orthodox to believe a lie, (laughs) what do you, what, what do you base what on? I mean, that's, that's the amazing thing, is the lie can be so pervasive that most of the people got it wrong. 
that absolutely have it wrong and do not know what they're talking about. So, if you look at that word, uh, cult, it comes from a Latin word, cultus, which means habitation or tilling or refinement, even worship. Well, what does habitation have to do with worship? It's, it's where you live, what, what you value. And it, it actually, cultus has to do with cultivate. And, uh, it's, it's where you put your roots in, in your society. Uh, it's how you live and how you, the way you go. But one word that pops up in uh, the definition of cult is religion. So we need to take a look at religion. What is the definition of religion? It says, uh, just, just right out of the standard, like Collins Dictionary. A set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe, especially when considered as the creation of a superhuman agency or agencies, usually involving devotional rituals, observances, and often containing moral codes governing the conduct of human affairs. Now, when you say superhuman agency, we would think of divine agency. But even Hawkins, who is probably one of the most famous physicists, theorists, atheists around, when he was backed into a corner, where did man begin and how did he evolve just so complex a creature just by coincidence and, and haphazard connection of chemicals? He admitted that it was probably extraterrestrials that were involved in the creation of mankind, which would be superhuman agency, I guess. So, the fact is, is that even atheists have their religion. They have their set of beliefs, the way they think. You know, an evolutionist, an atheist evolutionist, he believes in a cause of nature and the purpose of the universe, especially when considered as the creation to an agency. Because mankind molds himself in the, in the uh, evolutionist viewpoint. And so, therefore, there are some men who are superhuman, which is why you have the superhuman race, the Nazis thought of themselves as the superhuman group that they were better than others that would make them superhuman if everybody else is human so religion again there's a word that doesn't really necessarily mean going to a church with a steeple it it has to do with what you believe the cause of nature is it simply evolution uh, uh survival of the fittest is it now, moral code. What is the moral code? Even atheists have some sort of moral code, usually. They certainly have laws, which are codified. And it goes on in the second definition. is a specific fundamental set of beliefs and practices generally agreed upon by a number of persons, or sects, or Christian religion, Buddhist religion, etc., etc. So, religion, that's the way it's defined in the modern dictionary. Now, the word that we see translated into religion in the Bible is uh, threskia, which has to do with what you do, not what you think. 
It's not what you believe. It has to do with what you do. And, and of course, it is involving what you believe because it is assumed that what you do, you do because you believe something. But pure religion is specifically defined by James is how you take care of the needy of your society. How do you take care of the widows and orphans, you know, the people who don't have family, that are falling through the cracks, who are having difficulties? How do you take care of them? Do you do it through faith, hope, and charity, or you, do you do it spotted by the world? And the word world there means constitutional order or system of government. So, do you take care of your needy without the help of government? Do you do it simply by those of you who have two coats, share with those that don't have any. Those of you who have extra food, share with those who don't have enough. Is that how you do it? Is that your religion? Because that's the way James defined it. And if you look carefully at the Bible and, and history, you'll see that that is what religion was. That is what the temples were in the pagan world. That's what the temples were in... Uh, Jerusalem, it's how they took care of their needy. And that's how they defined their religion, how they did that. And the early Christians said that they did it unspotted by the world, the constitutional orders and systems of government of the world at that time. And now we need to know a little bit about history in order to figure out what all that really means. So anyway, one person writes on our network, the Living Network. Everybody should be a member of the Living Network. He says the core of a cult is its wrongful but convincing ideology and is defined by its ability to lead people in a direction toward it to their detriment and away from, and he uses the word normality. And again, when we talk about normality, what's normal? Normal today, normal, you know, what's normal in Germany at the time of Hitler, uh, today, uh, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago when, or 2000 years ago when Rome was invading and they were, uh, out there with Herman the German fighting off the Roman legions and destroying them and maintaining their freedom. And would have no Caesar over them. No emperor over them. And even executed Herman the German when he tried to become emperor. And he said it wasn't that we didn't want a Roman emperor. We don't want an emperor at all. They were operating in a free society. So that was normal then. That's evidently not normal now. Because they have outlawed even homeschooling. Because they fear... Someone might actually, they've gone from everybody being free individuals to no one is allowed to create an alternative society in their society. They're still very much in accord with many of the ideologies of Hitler. And they feel that's normal. And that's okay. But really... After those definitions, after we understand those particular definitions, a little bit better, hopefully, at least how, how we're using the word religion. And we'll use it in both ways. Let's look at 
this idea of churchism because this whole idea of ism you know that that could be a show in itself just covering what is an ism communism socialism and churchism and the fellow wrote an article and then he evidently wanted me to read a second or a third article and he didn't let me know when it came at least I didn't see a notice come in but I happened to stumble back on his site and I and I read his uh, article on churchism and churchism history. And he says it was Constantine who invented the church as we know it. Before Constantine, Christians had no centralized organization, no official buildings, no priests, no professional preachers. Absolutely not true. And that should be evident just by reading the Bible. But the reality is, uh, if you read the other histories surrounding just the first century, documents we have coming right out of the first century, documents that we have coming out of uh, the era of Constantine, and what how things were changing, we know that there had to be something going on there that this individual seems to be unaware of. Long before Constantine, some of the emperors were actually returning property to the church, property that had been wrongfully confiscated to the church. Now, why would the church need property? Were they putting up buildings with little white steeples and everybody going there and singing, uh, bringing in the sheaves? No, they were doing something though. They had, we know they had property, people sold property, people laid money at the foot of the apostles. What were they doing with all that money? What were they doing with that? We know that when there was a dearth, a depression, an economic collapse in a particular area, they gathered up funds and they moved it over there. We know that contributions came out of Macedonia, uh, by the hand of Paul to Jerusalem. What were they contributing to? What were they doing? What what was what was the conflict between Christianity and the world, the constitutional order and systems of government of the world? Because they ended up persecuting Christians. Why? Because they had a different idea. They believed something that other people didn't believe. Well, yeah, actually that's true. But what did they believe that was so different? What were they doing that was so different that would incur such persecution? And when Constantine legalized Christianity, did he legalize all of Christianity? Did he legalize it in a way that would be cast up according to Christ? Anyway, the article goes on to talk about now there are more than 35,000 church denominations in the world. I've heard figures as high as 40,000. And every year the number is growing He says, I call this churchism because it is an age of the church which did not exist in 70 A.D. Well, what did exist in 70 A.D.? He says it did not get its start from heaven. It will not and cannot endure because God His and His begotten Son and His chosen apostles had nothing to do with uh, churchism. Genus. What did they have to do with? Because we, now he's using the Genesis there, uh, but we talked about the genius of the emperors 
as opposed to the genius of Christ. This is why Christians were persecuted, is they did not believe in the genius of the emperor. And they would not sacrifice on his altars. And they would not bow down and worship his gods. And, what, and people don't understand what any of that is that I just said. The gods, the gods many. Who, Who's Paul talking about? And, of course, we're not going to be able to cover all this, but the fact is, until you start defining these words, why there were gods many, and who these gods were that we were not to make covenants with, nor with their gods. It says, don't make covenants with the people nor with their gods. Don't make treaties. Don't make leagues. All the same word in the Hebrew. But uh, this was part of the commandments. And why is God commanding us this? Not to make covenants with them nor with their gods. Why does he tell us to worry about the common purse where that runs towards evil? Why is he telling us if we sit and eat with a ruler, put a knife to our throat? These are all things he tells us. Why is Paul saying, what agreement do you have with unbelievers? You have to put the, if you want the pieces of the puzzle, if you want to understand what the early church, the early Christians were doing, you gotta take a look at the whole picture. Why did God say, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods? Huh? Well, do you covet, do you desire anything that is your neighbor's? Do you desire anybody to take something away from your neighbor for your benefit? Because if you do, you're not keeping the commandments. And according to Christ, if you're not keeping the commandments, you're not going to have eternal life. You can tell me you believe in Jesus till the cows come home, but you're not going to have eternal life. Because you, by policy, are not keeping the commandments. I'm not talking about slipping up here and there. I'm talking about by your religious beliefs, by your rites and ceremonies. You violate the commandments on purpose. And you like violating the commandments. And you intend to keep on violating the commandments. If that is the case, and we're going to take a look at that before we're done, then you you go tell me you believe in Jesus. And I'll tell you, you're a liar. If He goes on to say, is this the body of Christ... Or is this the body of Christ in error? He says the younger, newer generation today are totally rejecting that what their parents are passing down to them because they see in their parents and their churches that they were introduced to is hypocrisy. And I, I have to agree that a great deal of what you see in churches today is hypocrisy because they talk about loving their neighbors, but they don't really. They have good thoughts about their neighbors. They may have good thoughts about Jesus Christ. But are they doing what he said? If they believe in him, they must believe in what he said. And then, therefore, they would keep his commandments. They would do what he said. But the fact is, the church today is not doing what Christ said. He goes on, yet churchism has no support uh, from the Holy Scriptures that God left for our understanding. I would like for us to examine four things at this point. Now, there's churchism, and I mentioned in the notice to the network that I'd be talking about non-churchism. And, of course, 
this is a conflict that comes up. People see the hypocrisy of the modern church. They see the modern church is really about self-righteousness. It's not about righteousness. It's not doing what Christ said. It's not doing what the early church did. It has beliefs. It thinks they're saved not by works as an example, but they're saved by what they think. You know, they save themselves by thinking a thought. They they say, I believe in Jesus. That's a thought. That's what you think you do. You believe in Jesus. You don't have to do anything. You just have to believe in Jesus. So they save themselves with a thought, and they don't want to be bothered with works. So, anyway, that's a hypocrisy in itself. And all the other hypocrisies we'll talk about when we return. But he talks about four things. Preachers and elders and bishops and church treasuries and going to worship. And we're going to cover all those things before we're done on Keys of the Kingdom. Be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're looking at this idea of cults and religion and churchism and the individual rights about preachers, pastors, and priests. He says, uh, have you ever wondered why all the churches have someone totally unqualified and not sent by God to stand before them and preach a sermon every week as though they are doing God's work? There is not a single reference in all the New Testament scriptures. This is what he's writing that gives us authority or any reason to hire a man or allow a man to stand before an assembly or Christians and preach a sermon as though it is part of God's plan. Well, that, of course, is totally false. He goes on to say, it all comes uh, to us from hundreds of years of gradual traditions. Now, what we see today in your modern churches is totally false, but not for the reasons he's saying. Hire, that would mean that the, uh, the minister is your employee and you're his boss. The very essence of a minister of God is that his employer is God. That's who is employing him. God has a task for him, and you see all kinds of references in the New Testament where Paul is talking about people that are that are prophets, that are teachers, that are doing all sorts of things, works, and have diligently worked, women and men both. And if they work, then they are worthy of their hire. They're worthy to be paid. And contributed to. And, and we see Paul, like, uh, helping carry these provisions about to ministers. Now, I admit that in true Christianity, the minister is trying not to be a burden to the people. But we're going to see that what was the early church doing that the modern church is not doing? And there doesn't seem to be any reference to that just that we don't need any kind of church at all, that we're all just like we just read the Bible and give a few coins to the poor and we're all saved. You know, I don't know where he's going with this, trying to get rid of church. Now, 
when I first started publicly ministering, you know, I, I was called in my heart, in my mind, uh, half a century ago. And then God began to teach me, began to put people in front of me, began to show me information. As a matter of fact, when things really started popping, I, I told God I couldn't afford books, so if you want me to read something, you're going to have to give it to me. And, and I mean, it turned around, there were stacks of books on my front step. And I said, I'm going to have to read all this. And no, then he showed me how to read them. I just open up a book and just fan through it. And then all of a sudden, a page catches my eye and I read that page. And that's how I went about things. I, I wouldn't have had the time to write all these books and, and support my family and support this ministry, which for... Decades and decades, most of this ministry has been supported out of our labor. Where we go out and work, and we're still going out and working um, for other people. And they either pay us or they don't pay us. But if they pay us, the ministry is supported. And we have tried not to be a burden. But in order to do the work of the early church, it requires that everyone support that work. Now, what was that work? And there does, in, when I first, what I was going to say is when I first started to preach, I couldn't even use the word church. It had such a bad taste in my mouth because I had seen such hypocrisy in churches all around me for decades. And I didn't even want to use the word church, so I used the word ecclesia. And then I realized that the only thing that was keeping me from using the word church is the fact that I resented the fact that they had been so, I'd been so deceived. All I had to do was forgive the churches that had deceived me. Because I have to realize that they too have been deceived. And then I could use the word again. And just as they redefined the word ecclesia to be, you know, they, they translate that church, which actually comes from church A which has to do with a temple. And of course, we are a temple. We're just a living temple. We're just not a dead stone temple. So we are a church A. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church A of the Holy Spirit. So the only thing that kept me from using that was my unforgiveness. So once I forgave them, their hypocrisy, and the fact that they deceived me for years, allowed me to use the word. And that just as they redefined that word to mean something that it is not, I can go back and it's defined in my heart and my mind by what Christ really meant when he says, I appoint unto you a kingdom. If we read in Acts 2.14, he says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell in at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Jesus was gone when he decided to go out there and start preaching. But something, the Holy Spirit within his heart and mind, told him to go out and say these things. And he says, for these are not drunken. And he's talking about the other men who are out there preaching, as you suppose, seeing it is the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel 
And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. Last days? Are they in the last days? I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So anyway, Peter was preaching, and Peter clearly spent the rest of his life preaching, not fishing. So how did Peter make a living? He didn't accumulate a lot of gold and silver, but he still had to buy tickets on boats and and go about and do things and uh, he had a family and and people still had to eat so how did he eat how did he live people gave him money people gave him food people paid him who was he working for jesus christ and people chose to give to him he was a priest of the kingdom and could eat of the showbread could eat of the Offerings. He could eat of what was laid upon those living altars of apostles and other ministers. Because there were 12 apostles, but there were 120 names in the upper room. So that wasn't just apostles. And all of them were going out and preaching. And baptizing thousands of people that first day. And the next day. What were they doing? What, what was the consequences of that baptism? People think, oh, we gotta go get baptized today, but are they suffering the consequences of the baptism that the early church was suffering? Because there were consequences. And we'll get to that. Acts 2.21 went on to say, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so people say, I'm calling on Jesus. But is that really calling on the name of the Lord? Because the name in those days, no most, meant who the person was. You know, I have a guy in the town next to us named Jesus. That's his name. So if I say Jesus, am I calling him or am I calling Jesus of Nazareth? Well, it's the same name. But they aren't the same people. Because who he was is not how you spell his name. It's who he is. And in uh, Acts 2.22, it says, ye, ye men of Israel, and he's saying Israel there. They were in Judea. It was called Judea. But he says Israel, he, because there were a lot of people visiting then, because this was Pentecost. This was 50 days after the Passover. And Jesus had been gone for 10 days. And now the power was being restored, because they were going to be working in the temple. But they didn't, they didn't praise the temple as they once did because they now knew that the real temple, the real church is made of men who are doing the will of the Father. Doing it. Not just hearing it, but doing it. This was the church A living temple of men and women. He says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, 
as ye yourselves also know. Because they had known. They had seen this. Who was this guy? If we go on to Acts uh, verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, we say Lord and Christ, and they have some sort of meaning in our heads. But here we go again. Let's take a look at the words. The word kuros is the word Lord there. And it's translated Lord many times, about 50 times, but also Master. Occasionally, it's it's translated Sir. But it means He to whom a person or a thing belongs, about which He has the power of deciding Master and Lord. The possessor and disposer of a thing. Is it not lawful to do with mine own what I will? The owner of one who has control of the person, the master, in the state, the sovereign prince, the chief, the Roman emperor. He is saying Jesus is the Lord. There is another king, one Jesus. He was made king. Even Rome recognized him as king. This is the king of Judea. The people at the coming into the Israel, into Jerusalem, hailed him, highest son of David, Messiah, Christ, same word, Messiah, anointed. He's the king. That's the king. And he, as king, he says, I appoint unto you a kingdom, but you are not to be like the princes of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. This is what the apostles were, the ambassadors were to the kingdom. They were the representatives of a government. If you got the baptism of Jesus Christ as opposed to the baptism of Herod, because Herod was baptizing too, you would be cast out of the social welfare system operated through the temple at Jerusalem. And if you were a part of the temple at Roma, also built by Herod, you could be cast out of that. The point is, now, what system of social welfare were you going to depend upon? If you were an old person, if you were a needy person, if you were a crippled person, if you were whatever... If you had any social welfare need, where would you go now? Once you got that baptism on that day of Pentecost, when thousands got it, you were not going to be able to go to the treasury, the gastaphone, the corbin of the temple run by the Pharisees and get bread, free bread. Somebody else is going to have to give you that bread now if you had a need, a true need. And this is what the early church was doing. Everybody who got the baptism of Jesus Christ was going to be cast out of one system. And now their Lord, their King, their Sovereign was going to be Christ. This is what they were doing. This is what baptism meant. Now that's not what baptism meant with Constantine. 
Constantine, Constantine remained your lord and master. You did, but you were now going to have to get your benefits to the temples of Christianity created by Constantine and not the, the temples of created by God, which were living temples. The priests and the ministers rightly dividing the bread for the needy of society would only receive funds by free will offerings because they were not to exercise authority like the other governments. This is the distinction between Christ church, Christianity, assembly, and all other assemblies, all other cults. You see, you're a member of a cult, the cult of the United States. You have venerated your constitutions and your congress and your presidents, and you serve them and you worship them. And we'll get into that, where that word worship comes from. And you are cultivated by them. And if you have needs, widows and orphans amongst you, you will go to your leaders your lords, your anointed, your Roman emperors, your princes and chiefs. Because Christ is not your prince and chief. That's just lip service. That's just what you say. But what you do, the rites and rituals, is you go down and apply for the benefits at your temple, at the system of social security and and welfare offices. And you give them your number. And they say, oh, you're eligible for these benefits. And you never ask, where's that money come from? Oh, it comes from your neighbor. We send men out with guns to collect it so that we can give to you. He said, but, but aren't we to live by faith, hope, and charity? Don't you always ask that when they tell you how the system works? No, you don't, because you don't live by faith, open charity. When you give alms, which we will refer to in the next uh, part of the show, unless we get to it before the end, when you give alms, that's just token stuff to make you feel good. Because isn't that what church is really all about? It's about feeling good. That's why you go to church, because I like this church, because it makes me feel so good. You know, you need to repent and get baptized in the ways of Christ. Anyway, it says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. Because they understood that Christ had been preaching a system of social welfare based on faith, hope, and charity. John the Baptist had done the same thing. Got two goats? Share. You got extra food? Share. With those that don't have enough. Herod was saying, oh, you have a need? Join my system. I'll force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. And when you got his baptism, you made a covenant with him and with his gods. What gods? Gods are simply ruling judges. All court judges are called gods at that time by Hebrew and Roman and Greek. 
Because that's what the word means. It means ruling judge. Who is the ruling judge of your life? Well, who have you made contracts with? Who have you applied to? Who have you prayed to for your benefits? Men who exercise authority one over the other? Well, then you couldn't be a follower of Christ because he said it wasn't to be that way with you. Said it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It wasn't to be that way with you. You were to love your neighbor, not force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, not covet your neighbor's goods through the agency of the governments you create for yourselves, not pretend to be a part of Christ's church when you're really a part of Caesar's church. People worry about Constantine, Roman Constantine, creating a church system When the real church system is down at your welfare office, that's where you go. You just go to the churches with those unqualified ministers so you can feel good about taking from your neighbor the other six days of the week. You see, he's missed the whole gospel from the beginning. He was trying to set men free from who? You! You who exercise authority one over the other through the agency of the governments you create, forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. You don't go to church to get your daily bread. You go to the governments of the world who exercise authority to get your daily bread and your benefits. And you send your parents to them because you're, you know, you you don't believe in the Corbin of Christ. You believe in the Corbin of the Pharisees. Are you pricked in the heart when I tell you this? They said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent! Turn around. Go another way. That's what repent means. And be baptized, every one of you, In the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. What sin? The sin of coveting your neighbor's goods, of forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. Stop going to the free bread of Rome and Herod. This isn't so free. That is a system of welfare that is a snare. And deceitful meats. Now we're talking religion here. Religion will be what you're doing. They knew that if they got the baptism, they would be cast out. Well, how did they know that? It's right there in the Bible. For the promise is unto you, he says, and to your children. What promise are you giving your children? By going to the welfare of the men who exercise authority, you promise your children eternal debt and slavery. And bondage, where their labor and their lives will be devoured in an endless system of debt and control. Because you've gone whoring after other gods, made covenants with them to get benefits, sold your birthrights as a free people, as and did not remain faithful in the liberty in which Christ had made you free. Christ made them free, but they had to follow the way of Christ and take care of one another. In order to do that, they were going to need ministers to carry the funds, which we see Peter and Barnabas and and Paul doing. 
For the promise is unto you and your children if you repent. And you have not yet done that. You got baptized, but you're just all wet. And to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. He's talking about in the future. Shall call in the future. So who are the ministers he's calling in the future? And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. That's where you guys are at today. In an untoward generation. Not doing what Christ said. In Acts 2, uh, verse 42, it says, And they... Uh, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrines and fellowships and in breaking of bread, dividing bread, sharing bread, and in their prayers, in their applications. Where? At church A, the living church, made out of living stones, of people who cared as much about their neighbor as they did themselves and took care of one another so they did not have to go and sit and eat with rulers. And as Proverbs says, put a knife to their throats. They didn't have to do that. They went to church. In John 9.22, he said, These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if any man did confess that he was Jesus, was Christ, was the Messiah, was the King, David was called Messiah, Messiah, anointed. He would be put out of the synagogue. No more welfare. This was with the blind man. Remember when the blind man was healed by Christ and he had never seen Christ? Because he went and washed out and then he got his eyes and then got his sight back. So he hadn't actually seen Christ. He didn't know what he looked like. But he said, I profess Christ because he knew Christ had healed him. And he was cast out of the synagogue. And his parents feared being cast out because anyone who got the baptism of Christ and confessed Christ would be cast out. And they would no longer be able to get the welfare at the temple of Jerusalem. And we're going to talk more about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church.
Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're talking about churchism. We've done a couple of shows on churchism, which is a new coined phrase. We used to use the word churchanity. And the question is, what is the church, and what is not the church? What does the church mean? Where, where does that word even come from? I mean, the word church comes from an old English word, churche, which meant temple, and it actually was, in writing, sometimes used to refer to pagan temples. So where's the temple of Christianity if there's a Christian church? And what that is, is actually the Christian church is made up of people. It's not made up of stones and or dead stones. It's made up of people who form the church itself. Now, the church in its most general sense is considered and defined as one form of government in the legal dictionary. It's a form of government that is designed by Christ. It actually says that the church is established by Christ. That's what it says in Black's Law Dictionary. They have further definitions that they have since added. They have for about um, to Black's Seventh, I think it was. That's basically the church. It was a community of people, a society of people that were brought together according to his ordinances and principles and to propagate those ordinances and principles and teachings, doctrines. But there is 35,000 churches in the world today uh, that are claiming to be Christian churches. Some estimate the number is around 40,000. And uh, they're not all doing the same thing. Are they all churches established by Jesus Christ, as the definition implies. Well, no, they're not all established by Jesus Christ. So the question is, what does the real church look like? What is it really supposed to be? If you go back to the Greek word that we see in the Old Testament and New Testament, actually, in the, it's basically in the New Testament. There is an Old Testament Greek. But... Um, the Greek that we see in the New Testament, the word church is from the Greek word ekklesia, which is two words, ekklesia, meaning the called out. And it's an idiom. It's a Greek idiom. And basically what ekklesia means is those that were called out. And usually they had ekklesias all the time in the ancient city-states. When the city-states often became corrupt, and abusive or, uh, you know, too authoritarian, the people would complain and they would call for an ecclesia. And the men who wanted the people of the city to go a certain way would go outside the city walls, outside of the jurisdiction of the municipality, and call the people out. And if enough people came out, the government would bow down to their demands. It's it's very similar to what we call a strike today. You know, you're working in a corporate industry and you think your employers are being abusive. People have a call-out. They call out the workers to come out of the plant and picket it. This is what an ecclesia was in the ancient city-states. It was the called-out. The calling out of the people to not be a part of the system that you that had become abusive. You see the same thing with Gandhi. 
that they would have these worker strikes. And it would just shut down the whole nation. People might come to work, but they wouldn't get anything done. Kind of like Washington, D.C. <laughs> that was a cheap shot of me. But the point is, is this is what it meant to be the called out. Well, Christ didn't call people out to change the policies of Caesar. He called people out to change their own policies. And we've had shows before where we talk about the beast system. And, you know, there was the beast at the time of Christ and and the followers immediately after. And then they talk about the image of the beast. And we've talked about the distinction and the uncanny similarity to what we have today in the world today. Represented in itself as government is actually composed of the beastie nature, the little beasties in us all that wants to exercise authority over our neighbor, wants to control our neighbor, wants to regulate our neighbor, wants to rule over our neighbor rather than love our neighbor as ourselves. And this is where the beast system is created and how it's created. It's created by this beastie in the hearts and minds of the people of the world. And I use the word world there in the sense of constitutional order or system of governments, which is why the word is defined in the Greek that we often see translated into world. So, the beast system is created by the beast nature in thousands, millions of people who covet their neighbor's goods, who want to control their neighbor. That spirit of wanting to exercise authority over other people weakens society. It sets society up so that society will go under the same authority that it wishes to exercise over others. You know, and they talk about this in Proverbs where they they talk about wanting to have one purse and and the, isn't not the net spread before the bird, but it is, you know, when you go to lurk privately for the blood and the sweat and the tears of other people to benefit you, it will be your blood, sweat, and tears that you that will be called for. You will be trapped in the very net of your own making. What should have been for your welfare will become a snare. So, what Christ was establishing when he said, I appoint unto you a kingdom, was a church, a calling out of his apostles to turn people around to try to live another way than the way that they were living before. So, we have to kind of know what they were doing before in order to know how they're changing it. And of course, most people don't know, many of you regular listeners know, that Moses was baptizing people at the foot of Mount Sinai. They were washing up. It wasn't baptism like we think, but they talk about this washing up, cleaning up their act. The same tradition of washing up was used to enter the temple. That's why they had a laver outside the temple. You had to wash before you entered the temple. And we also see the baptism of John the Baptist, which was a washing. Baptism means washing. That's all it means, is washing. Although they use, there's a baptismo and a baptisma in the Greek. And one means that you wash somebody, but the other one means you actually submerge and they use it. The difference between the two, they make the analogy, although it's not the only place you see it where you wash a cucumber 
and then you put it into vinegar and you literally are washing it in the vinegar too. But of course you leave it in the vinegar, soaks in the vinegar and the cucumber becomes a pickle. It actually changes the nature of the cucumber. And that's the word that they use. That washing of the cucumber in vinegar is the word they use for baptism. To immerse yourself in what? In a new way. And, of course, the way that John the Baptist was talking about was a way of faith, hope, and charity, not a way of force and violence. Until John the Baptist, the people tried to establish the kingdom of God by violence, by force. We see that in two places in the Bible where they make reference. Same word in the Greek, but they translate it different ways in the English. But it's saying the same thing. John the Baptist was was saying that the way you take care of your needy is through loving one another and caring for one another in an active sort of way. Herod had set up a system of baptism whereby you were registered with the temple. You became a member of the temple. And scribes wrote your name down and then you had to pay in. And this built the treasury of the temple. So they had lots of money. And they bought gold and they made gold inlaids on the, on the temple doors and, and all these ornaments around the temple. And because they had all this money coming in and people liked that because they knew that gold was there because why were they collecting this money just to build a big fancy temple? No, it's because their social welfare was distributed out of the temple to a, a network of synagogues which were like government buildings in a theocracy. That's where you went for your benefits, for your needs. And everybody having to contribute, the coffers ran full. But it attracted a different kind of minister. A minister who was not a minister of service, but someone who was also attracted to the gold and the riches and the power. And it changed the nature of society, the way Herod set up welfare. And everybody was who signed up for it and got that baptism was snared in that system. This is what they were doing in the temple. The treasury that held the funds for the social welfare of the people was called Corbin. You'll actually see the word in the Bible, Corbin, when Jesus talks about the Corbin of the Pharisees makes the word of God in none effect. But in another place, you see that same word, Corbin, translated treasury. It's when they were talking about taking the 30 pieces of silver, putting back into the place where they got the money out of. This is the 30 pieces that um, was given to Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot supposedly gave it back. And then they said, is it, since we paid this out for this, this is blood money, should we put it back in the... Treasury. And the word there for treasury is the Hebrew word that we see in the Greek text, Corbin, back in the sacrifice. Because see, what, what was going into that treasury was your sacrifice. It was in there to take care of the needy of your society, including yourself, when you had a need. But by the time you had a need, you wouldn't be paying in anymore, so you're not getting your money back. That's already gone out to help other people you're going to get back the money that other people are paying in. And because of the way Herod set it up, they have to pay in once they sign up. That's not faith, open charity. So anyway, we've, we've talked about it. 
So Christ comes along, and they were talking about the church in the wilderness. That was the Pharisees. Not the Pharisees, but the, the Levites before. They were the church in the wilderness. They were called out. People say, well, all of Israel was the church in the wilderness. No. The church in the wilderness, the ecclesia in the wilderness, was the calling out in the wilderness. Not the calling out to the wilderness. You have to remember that Israel was not called out to the wilderness. They were kicked out of Egypt and were headed towards the promised land. While they were there, they they created a walled-in camp. And they created a golden calf where everybody took their gold and paid it in like the gold inlays of Herod's temple. They put their wealth in this golden calf, which was now their treasury. That was their corbin. That was their sac- they sacrificed that to go into this treasury. And then this, you couldn't leave your community without leaving that treasure behind. And God does not want you to be bound in such a way. But anyway, so that's where the golden calf was. It was a treasury. It was a corbin. It was a way in which to vault that gold and riches that was held by these priests who would dole out services as need be. And we've given examples that they had these golden statues in all the other city-states. And they used those golden statues and referred to them even in the Greek as the reserve fund. And occasionally uh, some of the... Uh, uh, leaders in the Greek city-states, I think Prometheus, uh, would actually saw off a limb of the golden statue and melt it down and make coins to pay the army to defeat the enemy. Because armies cost money. I mean, you have to feed them. Israel was operating in a different way originally, but then it started going over to this other way with the kings. And that's what was happening now with Herod and the Pharisees at the time of Christ. When Christ and John the Baptist show up on the scene, they're talking about faith, open charity, and loving your neighbor as yourself, quoting Moses. So when Jesus called out the apostles and appointed unto them a kingdom, and we translate that word ecclesia called out, as church, they were the ecclesia, the church. They were the living stones of a living temple. And people were seen immediately in Acts contributing to them by free will choice. Because they could not exercise authority one over the other like Herod did. Because Christ preached against that. So now we have people coming on the scenes talking about churchism didn't exist before Constantine. They're saying that there were no ministers anywhere in the church, paid ministers in the church, before Constantine. It's completely not true. We see in Acts where they talk about the daily administration not being taken care of. And Peter says it's not right that we wait on tables, and the word tables there is the same word they translate into bank. It's not right that we be handling these centralizing funds. And they're not centralized funds. They were given in local congregations and those local congregations took care of most of the need. But occasionally there was extra and they passed it up into a more centralized treasury. But it wasn't like a golden calf. It was like a network, a body where blood would come up, where funds would come up when they were needed. And they had men like Barnabas and and Paul uh, taking those funds from from one place to the next, like from Macedonia to Jerusalem or Assyria. 
And they came at a time when there was a depression and shortages. This is what the Christians were doing. This is why Christians were persecuted eventually. Is because they had a private religion, a private way of taking care of the needy of their society. And we see in the world today, they don't want you to have a private way to take care of the needy, the the uh, infirm, the sick in your society. They want you to have only a public way and they're forcing everybody to be a part of their public system of health, education, and welfare. In some countries, it's illegal to teach your children at home. Now it's becoming illegal to take care of the sick for yourself. You have to buy government insurance. In other words, you have to sacrifice to the government. That's your Corbin. Sacrifice. Corbin means the same thing. To the government to take care of the needy of your society. And they say you have to do this because you're not doing it any other way. A few places were doing it. The Amish were doing it. They get an exemption. You're not doing it. So you don't get an exemption because you've been slothful in the ways of Christ. You haven't been doing what the early church did. When did you see any church in the 20th century get together and say to their ministers, we are neglecting the daily ministration of the widows and orphans and needy of our society? They are having to go to the men who call themselves benefactors that exercise authority. They're having to collect disability from men who exercise authority one over the other. Because the church is not providing that. And the church says, oh, we need to provide that because Christ clearly said we should. But they're not doing it. So now we got guys coming along because they see the churches singing. They see the churches with their ministers. They see the churches building crystal cathedrals or whatever. I always pick on the crystal cathedral. But, you know, all of your churches with the big screen TV and the sound system and all that stuff, which are fine. There's nothing wrong with those things in themselves. But if they have that and are not taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of their society, if they are sending them to be captured in a welfare system that is a snare, that brings them and their children and their children's children into debt, then they're not the church established by Jesus Christ because they're not promoting his doctrines. And that's what's happening today. Yes, the church is impotent. Yes, the church has lost its way. Yes, the church is not what Christ intended that you see on the street corner. But all you have to do is repent and it can become that. It can become what Christ intended it to be, what the early church was. They had a union and discipline that was admired by historians, feared by emperors. Because they were networked together in such a way that they had to love one another and help one another. People aren't doing that. They're not doing that in their system. So, you know, I was reading from this article on churchism at churchism.org. And they were saying that there weren't any of these ministers. There wasn't any of the, the assembly, the idea of assembling. You don't need to do that. How can you take care of the social welfare of your people unless you do assemble? To keep track of how do you know who's in need of help? Unless you've taken the time to know them. This is what Christ was setting up. Is the way There was plenty of social welfare. I've had people in a, a uh, first century church 
group say, well, we have to have social welfare today. They didn't have that back in the days of Jesus Christ. What are you talking about? They had an extensive system of social welfare. They had the equivalent of food stamps. They had a giveaway of grain and meat and vegetables and even wine. Given away so that you could take care of the needy of your society. In order to do it, they had to distinguish who was poor and who was really poor and who was just moderately poor because they had different amounts that they paid to different people. So they had all the record keeping and this was all kept in the temples. In the churches of the Roman Empire, which were all public institutions regulated by Rome. Financed by tax dollars in most cases. wasn't It didn't used to be that way, but it had become that way. And that's what you see happening today in America. Except for many of the churches are not funded by the government because they don't do any of the social welfare, or very little, of the social welfare that the government does today. When your government's in the world, got into the charity business, they killed charity. Because governments who exercise authority are not exercising charity. Cannot, cannot have free will offerings based on love and forced offerings based on power coming from the same people. I mean, if someone can sit up there and say, I now command everybody in the community to give. Where is the charity? There is none. And when charity is gone, there is a spiritual void that takes place in the hearts and minds of the people. Jesus says to give up your life that you may have life more abundant. When you're not daily giving up your life to take care of the needy of your society, you will not have life more abundant. You will have less life. You will become more vulnerable. In Second Thessalonians 2, 1, we see, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to say the sovereign, if you look at the original Greek, the sovereign Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed king, and by our gathering together unto him. But are you gathering together unto him? I mean, you say Jesus, but you're not taking care of the needy except through exercising authority. In Second Peter 2.15, we see which have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following a way of Balaam and Bozer, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And we've talked a bit before about that, that this Balaam and the Nicolaitan which sell their rights for benefits and become the conquered people, trapped in that very net they love the wages the benefits of unrighteousness we need to love righteousness that's what we're supposed to be seeking seeking the kingdom of God which is a system where people operate by faith the hope and charity and the perfect law of liberty and the righteousness of God to do so by free will offerings Based on that same love. So anyway, 
this was what the church was doing. This is what the called out were doing. They weren't just... People say, well, all they had to do is preach the kingdom and then it was preached everywhere and so it was done. That you're just saved because you believe Jesus. But if you believe Jesus, you will actually be saving one another and helping one another. And we don't know how that works. In Acts 15.25 it says, It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Sounds like men with a mission. What? Just to talk? Is that why they were sent? That, that word uh, being assembled, uh, the word assembled actually doesn't exist in the Greek. There is no word that they just put that in there to kind of fill out the statement and make it run smooth. But the word one accord does exist in there. And uh, the word gathered or gathered together does exist in there. And that is the word synagogue. But the word in one accord, uh, with one mind, is another way it's translated, as homothumodon. And it's a compound of two other words. But basically, it means this one mind. And what was that mind? The mind that says that we will take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity, not force and violence. With one mind, with one accord, with one passion. And this is referred to, and I'll read it here, a unique Greek word. Used ten of its twelve times in the New Testament occurrences in the book of Acts. So this is a word unique to the book of Acts. Helps us understand the uniqueness of the Christian community. The community. The people gathered together. It is a compound of two words meaning rush along and in unison. The image is almost musical, according to this one author. A number of notes are sounded which, while different, harmonize. And that's where the word homothomoden, harmonize, in pitch and tone. As the instrument of a great concert under the direction of a concert master, who is the Holy Spirit, blends together the lives and members of the Christ Church. This is what it was. The church was a community, a society of people promoting the doctrines of Christ that we should love one another and take care of one another and that we should keep the commandments if we want eternal life, which means thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Thou won't live by the sword. Thou won't take away from thy neighbor for thy personal benefit. You see, modern churches, they, they do all those things. They they pray to the fathers of the earth, to the rulers of the earth for their daily bread. They don't pray to God for their daily bread. They don't expect it to come to them by faith, hope, and charity. They want it to come like Herod operated, by force, compelling everybody who's a member of their group, their body, to compel as they need and see fit, as their rulers command. This this should be a no-brainer for any Christian to figure out how far off the mark we've come. And yet we don't. And here's someone who's talking about churchism, and he sees there is a hypocrisy in the modern church. 
But he thinks all we have to do is preach the gospel of the kingdom, but he doesn't know what the gospel of the kingdom really is. It's a system, a society that operates in a peculiar fashion by faith, hope, and charity. So they are peculiar people. He says there is also a terrible misunderstanding today of what the original elders were. And he talks about that. And we mentioned that. Elders were heads of families. You were an elder because you were the eldest head of a family. And the eldest head of the family got appointed to certain of those tasks, which we just mentioned before, that Paul sent people out to do. What were those tasks? Well, you're taking care of all the health, education, and welfare of every Christian, every Christian community throughout an entire empire, which is being devastated by runaway inflation and and commercial breakdown of society and corruption in the government. And the Christians were providing health, education, and welfare through faith, open charity. So there was a lot of work to do. I mean, a lot of work to do. And we'll be right back. Well, welcome back. So here's somebody who's who's written in churchism, and I don't blame him that he is so misled. And he also talks about, uh, did he even make reference to one other than uh, the ones at uh, Philippians. Did he not address all his letters to the assembled and the brethren? It was the apostles who had authority to rule over the saints at that time and not bishops and elders. No! No! Here, th- This fellow, writing about churchism, says it was the apostles who had authority to rule over the saints at the time and not the bishops and elders. Well, you know, here, let's read it. Let's look up. Right here in the biblical text, I have it right before me, there's at least three places that we can see these words where he talks about whether or not and who is to exercise authority one over the other. And what did Jesus say about that? And those of you who listen regularly know what I'm talking about. But if we go and look in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we will see in Matthew. But but Jesus called them to him, talking about the apostles, And said unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. Actually, I was reading out of Matthew and then I jumped to uh, Luke. But anyway, exercise dominion over them. And they that are great exercise authority upon them. So, he's telling me that it was the apostles who were to exercise authority, right? This is what he's writing in his page. But what does it say in Matthew twenty twenty six? 
But it shall not be so amongst you. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, your servant. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Nowhere are the apostles given the power to exercise authority one over the other. This is one of the things about when referencing um, the place for women in the church, which there was a huge place. There were women who were counted as apostles, and Paul mentions them. That they're great workers and should be highly esteemed. Even the chauvinist Peter comes out at Pentecost and is talking about our brothers and sisters having this responsibility to preach. But not to exercise authority. The overseers didn't exercise authority. The elders didn't exercise authority except over themselves. And neither did the apostles exercise authority. And as I was reading before in Luke, you can also find the same thing in Mark 10.42. And it says, it shall not be so amongst you. And in Luke 22.25. And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. Who's your benefactor? Who's your benefactor? Because here we see... Jesus saying, but ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest amongst you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, as he that doth serve. What Christ was doing was turning the government of the people upside down. At that time, the leaders were rulers. The leaders exercised authority. The rulers Rulers contracted from you because you contracted with them your funds to provide benefits for the people. And they put them in the treasury, the Corbin. There's also another word that's translated treasury, which is gastrophone, but that's the royal treasury. There's two treasuries. There's the royal treasury and then there's the Corbin treasury. Corbin treasury. And really there isn't any distinction between the two just as there are now as we pointed out. People talk about their social security funds, their disability funds, that these are all separate, that it is solvent, that we have enough money coming in to pay those. But the Supreme Court has ruled time and time again that there can be no earmarking of funds. All the funds are one common fund. So if you're operating in the bread, in the red, every loaf of bread you take, every a dime you take, is putting your neighbor more in debt. And you are eating the arm of your neighbor and you're eating the life of your children because they will never pay off the debt that you're creating by taking from those benefactors who exercise authority because they also exercise debt. And I'm always going back to the same thing, but I've come about it from a different way. And we've talking about this idea of church entity or churchism. So we have these 35,000 denominations, 
And they have some charity amongst them, and there are some really great people that are in the church. And they, they have a sense of spiritual love for God. And they read about Christ, and they like what they hear, and they love something about Christ. But the fact is, the definition of a lie is leaving out part of the truth. And it can, it's like instructions. If you leave out the instructions, everything could fall apart. And that's what's happened. And the, the devil loves it that way, that the adversaries of God loves it, that you don't get the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You get bits and pieces of it. And that way they can cloak the evil that's bringing about disease. It's bringing about uh, destruction of the genetic value of the food that you're eating. It's bringing about the destruction of your monetary systems. It's bringing in corruption in your governments, which exercise more and more more authority. It's creating an entire society in your midst full of locusts that wish to eat out your substance. It devour you whole. Devour the living whole. To bring you back into the bondage of Egypt. This is what's happening because damnable heresies have snuck in and said that it's okay to do these things and that it's not okay that we do these things and it leads us to a very bad place. And it's leading us to that place right now. And we are very close to the precipice, to the brink. And we need to turn around and go another way. We need to look at things anew. And one of them is this idea we think of as church. The gospel of the kingdom is to seek the right to be ruled by God through the righteousness of God. And it is righteous that you take care of the needy of your society with true, well-disciplined, well-organized almsgiving. Not into a central treasury where thieves and robbers can break in and steal in another topic that Jesus talked about. But through a network where you know where the funds are going. You give it to somebody who you consider the most charitable and giving individual amongst ten families. And you as elders of your family choose that minister. You elect to give to that minister. We we see in... In Luke 22:25, when we read down a little bit farther, they talk about, in, uh, I will appoint unto you a kingdom, he says, that ye may eat and drink at my table, my table, not the table of Caesar, but my table, in my kingdom, and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Judging? Why are you judging? I thought we were to judge not, lest ye be judged. Well, this word judging there is the word karino in the Greek. And it's a verb. And it appears uh, over a hundred times in the Bible. But it's not always translated judge, although it most often is translated judge. It's also translated determined. And in five places it's translated condemn. and two places it's translated go to law. Call into question, esteem, etc. 
So what does it mean, judging? Well, by bringing judgment upon people doesn't always mean that you are judging them. You are giving them an opportunity to make the right choice. If they choose this way, it will bring judgment. If they choose that way, it will bring a different judgment. So you're creating the opportunity of choice. And that's what's before all of us. The opportunity of choice. While the world is taking away your choices, you're going to have to have this health care whether you like it or not. You're going to have, I, I heard the other day that Congress is exempting themselves and their employees. But the rest of you, you're going to have to get it whether you like it or not. And they're taking away your choices. Well, the kingdom of God is to give you choices. Well, what is your choice? If you were actually taking care of one another in an organized, not top-down, but bottom-up system, grassroots charity, and, and there's no dues, there's no, you have to pay in this amount, but what you pay in will be accounted and known amongst the people in your immediate congregation. The giving nature and spirit that dwells in you will be evident by your works to the people around about you. And that and the desire and prayer that they will have to do right by you will be your social welfare. If you would do that, you would be exempt from the new systems. But it will extend out to everything from home education to home health. Because you're health, education, and welfare. You're called out of one system to be a part of another system that is based on righteousness and the perfect law of liberty and free will offerings alone. Could you do that? You could do that without all the waste, without all the graft and corruption, because you would know when somebody wasn't really disabled. We were just talking today. I was over at a neighbor's place helping him figure out some things. And he was talking about how people he knew that should have been on disability, you know, dragging their leg behind them. And I knew many men who had, you know, back injuries, clearly never stood up, had terrible, terrible back injuries. And they wouldn't even think of being on disability. They would think, why would I be on disability? I can do this. And they're out there doing it. While somebody else who has relatively nothing wrong with them, although they can sure whine a lot, they're on disability. In in a true free society, you will know who is who. You will live with them. You will be a part of them. This is what the early church was doing. This is what the church should be doing. It doesn't have anything to do with denominations. It has to do with the doctrines of Jesus Christ. His ways. His faith, His service to others. If you were doing that, if you were coming together to really, and that was one of the things he brought up was worship. What is worship? Worship was considered licking the hand of, that's actually where the word comes from. But it has to do with being of service. To who? How do you be of service to Christ? What do you have that He needs? Nothing. But He did say, feed my sheep, my flock. The others who are seeking my way. So, what you need to do is find others who are willing to serve their neighbor as themselves and love their neighbor as themselves.
you find them and help start taking care of them through faith, hope, and charity. And then you're on your way to the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this is, this is what church entity was all about. Church was all about. Calling out to do what? To take care of one another in faith, hope, and charity. To pray for your daily bread, not from Caesar, but from one another. And one another gathers together not for what they can get, but what they can do for others that will strengthen them. That will change you. It will change the environment around you. It will change the spiritual connection you have with the heavenly powers. Because now they can enter into you. That spirit can enter into you. Because you're coming into one accord with Christ. Not just saying, Lord, Lord, but actually doing what he said. And at times you'll find that hard. And when you do, then you get to see that and repent of that. This is the answer to health, to the economy, to the politics, to the welfare of society. To start becoming the government of the people, for the people, and by the people, through the perfect law of liberty, by faith, hope, and charity. And and we'll show you way more on how to do that as we continue on Keys of the Kingdom. We already do it on the website and in books, and we had a uh, we had two hours of radio broadcast this morning, and we had a study group uh, also this morning, and we'll have more of those during the week where people can call in. But all you have to do is go to hisholychurch.org and join the local network. The important thing is is that you begin to know others who are seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Because this system is going to fail. And just as the churchanity or churchism system is failing now. Because they aren't doing what Christ said. They're hearers. But then again, they don't hear. They don't really have ears to hear. You need to come together. Not to impose your doctrine. Exercise authority on others. The apostles weren't doing it. The overseers weren't doing it. The elders weren't doing it. The ministers weren't doing it. They were serving one another. Completely different attitude. They didn't come together for what they could get out of church. They came together in thanksgiving for what they could give to their brothers and their sisters. And that's what made them brothers and sisters. And if you're not doing that in your church, if you're just singing, you're just whistling Dixie. God does, is not going to hear you. He's going to say, Get ye from me, ye workers of iniquity. Because you haven't been keeping His commandments of loving one another. So it's, it's a, kind of a dilemma, kind of a catch-22. Because the world's going to keep demanding from you. You've already been snared. What should have been for your welfare has become a snare. So now we have to turn around and go another way. A completely different way. A way of righteousness. And uh, and that's that's going to be a lot different than what most people are used to. And what most people are thinking. The other th- topic he brought up was the church treasury. We already touched on that. The treasure is in your pocket. That's where the treasure of the kingdom is. It's in your pocket. 
And your pocket is ruled by your heart, not by the minister, not by the uh, apostles, not by the overseer. It's ruled by your heart. And your heart, if ruled by Christ, when funds are needed, you will share. And you will help out not only your congregation, but the next congregation. This will end the waste and abuse if the waste and abuse is ended in your own heart. So yes, the Corbin of the Pharisees made the word of God to none effect, but the Corbin of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, made it to very much effect. But today people have gone after the Corbin of the world, just like in those days. And it puts them more and more and more at risk. We need to turn around and go back to pure religion. So his summary is, to summarize, we need... Only to believe what we read in Scripture and disregard all we have received from man over the last 2,000 years. Well, the fact is, you can't read Scripture unless you understand what he meant by, and we've already gone over this, call no man on earth father. What did he mean by give us this day our daily bread? What did he mean by going from house to house, rightly dividing the bread. What did John the Baptist mean if your neighbor has no coat and you have to share? What did he mean by that? What did Jesus mean? You are not to be like the princes of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other, but call themselves benefactors. You are to be the benefactors who don't exercise authority. So what did he mean? Are you taking care of the widows and orphans? What did they mean by the daily ministration was being neglected? What did he mean by feed my sheep? What did he mean not covet thy neighbor's goods? Paul says this. Jesus says this. Keep the commandments. What did he mean? Well, if you're going to read the scriptures, let's read it all. Let's not exclude so much of it. The coming together of the ecclesia, the called out, is called out of what? The system of Herod. The, the Corbin that makes the word of God the none of fact. The assemblies during the transition was not a matter for us uh, of how to worship God. What, what transition? The only transition I see is that you've gone back to the bondage of Egypt. You're more in bondage than you were in Egypt where you only had to pay 20% to the government and they would take care of your your needs. You have to pay way more than that. Way more than even Rome. And all at the expense of your neighbor. You see, you, you've gone away and out of the way. We are to be a living temple, a living tabernacles, a sanctuary of righteousness in each home. And each home comes together, not in a corporate body, but in free assemblies. Binding one another, not by rules, not by laws, not by regulations, but by the law of love. Every elder is the head of every family, and every family is an altar of clay. And every altar of clay is built inside your own castles except for the fact that you've all gone back into bondage and you don't own your castles anymore, which is another topic. The treasure of the kingdom is investing in one another. Why are you going into banks? You should be going to church. 
Why are you charging one another usury? You should be going to church. You could do all this. And we show this in the books um, that Kingdom Comes in the Free Church Report. You you need pastors. You need ministers. You need servants. But the ones you have now are the ones that exercise authority one over the other. They're the ones who take care of the welfare of your flock because that's the flock you belong to. And your father is not the father in heaven, but the fathers of the earth who own you. And that's one thing that we need to remember and realize if we go back to the beginning of this this whole series on churchism is that when he talks about the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord, Jesus Christ, the word Lord there is defined in the Greek as the sovereign. And Christ was that sovereign of a kingdom he appointed to the apostles that requires that you live by faith, hope, and charity by actually physically loving one another and caring for one another in righteousness. Can you do that? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And if you do that, there will be change. Change towards righteousness. Change that will be a blessing to you and your children and your children's children. If you don't, it, it will be a hard time. But we'll talk more about this later. And until we meet again, may peace be upon your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.